It's Thursday, September 14th, 2006. You're listening to the first episode of the Eyes Right Podcast, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ from the heartland of the United States in Edmond, Oklahoma. Good evening and welcome to the first podcast from Eyes Right. That music was from Enter the Mystery by Michael Popenhagen from the Podsafe Music Network. This podcast is a recording of a presentation given by Pastor John Gruel, Associate Pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Edmond, Oklahoma, on September 13, 2006. The title of this presentation is The Age of Catholic Christianity, 70 to 312 A.D., Persecution and Orthodoxy. This presentation was the fourth part of a 15-part study on the history of the Christian Church. And for the primary historical text, the class has been using Bruce Shelley's book, Church History in Plain Language, the updated second edition. to uh, remember that you are the one who called the church into existence and to remind ourselves that you did not quit acting in history uh, at the end of the apostolic area. So we ask that you would guide our thoughts and uh, uh, our considerations as we, as we walk through the history of the church, uh, that we might learn more about you and more about ourselves through this process, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, if you'll, did you get an outline for tonight? Does it say, no? Okay, if you didn't get an outline, raise your hand, and Ken will try and take care of that. <laughs> okay, your outline for tonight should say at the top, the age of Catholic Christianity, 70 to 312. Persecution and Orthodoxy. Does everybody have that? Some do, some don't. Okay. Here, I think I have one extra. Here's one. Ken, here's one. Okay. Alright. So you have this one. Persecution and orthodoxy. Okay. Does anybody have, need last week's? Because Ken can give you one of last week's too. We'll be keeping extra copies. Okay. What does Catholic mean? Universal. Universal. Okay. Comes from the Greek word katholikos. It means general or universal, and that's what we mean by Catholic Christianity from the inception of the followers of Jesus through about the first three centuries, there really was just one expression of church. Now what we're going to talk about tonight is some of the things that formed the early church. And the early church was molded or formed by primarily several things. One was the exclusion from Judaism that occurred. Another was the persecution that the Christian community suffered from the prevailing culture, which was Roman culture. And the third major thing was the development of heresy, you know, uh, beliefs that sort of challenged the common thinking and led the church to develop its uh, orthodox theology and Scriptures, And so that's what we're going to look, look at tonight. First, let's look at what happened to the Christians as a community in their culture <clears throat> from the time we left them last week. If you'll remember, when we left them last week, they had been, uh, you know, followers of Jesus and then uh, churches planted by the Apostle Paul. And at this time, it was still sort of a subset 
of, uh, of Judaism. And if you'll recall, the Romans offered a special degree of toleration to the Jews, not because they respected them all that much, but the Jewish people were cantankerous people. And uh, the Romans just learned, you cut them a little slack, then you can live with them. But what happened is when the Jews and Christians started identifying each other as other, as soon as the Christians were no longer a subset or a sect of Judaism, they started experiencing persecution by the Roman Empire. Why? Well, there were a lot of reasons, but one of the primary reasons was that unlike their Jewish forebears, they were very active in proselytizing. You know, they had this good news. They wanted to share it. They wanted to spread it and invite other people into their expression. The Jews, you could become a Jew, but it was like, yeah, if you want to, maybe we'll let you. But they weren't quite as active in proselytizing. And there were, uh, there were a lot, lot less people converting to Judaism than there were to Christianity. And because of some of the uh, subversive natures of Christians, like they didn't want to swear loyalty to the emperor and they had a different way of living, they were seen as more of a threat. So Roman tolerance toward the Christians ended somewhere, you know, in the 60s. With Nero, we started having significant persecution. Ken talked about us about that last week. Uh, one of the things he told us and uh, I thought was interesting was that one of the ways that uh, Christianity developed was uh, among the women and even among the high-class women, uh, or women of higher classes, I guess I should say, and, uh, and they're, uh, especially if they were persecuted because of that. And I have this book that I had to buy in seminary that I didn't read back then, but I've been reading now. Documents in the early Christian church, and it's just got a whole bunch of documents. And I found one that describes one of these ladies, so I was going to share that with you. This comes from Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, and it's the trial of Pomponia Gricina. Pomponia Gricina, a woman of high rank, parentheses, the wife of Aulus Plautius, who, as I have mentioned, was granted an ovation for his British campaign, close parentheses, was accused of foreign superstition, which they assume was probably Christianity, and handed over to her husband for trial. He followed ancient precedent in hearing a case which involved his wife's legal status and her honor in the presence of members of the family and pronounced her innocent. Some of them weren't that lucky. Her husband happened to be the judge, so she got off. Uh, Pomponia's long life was passed in unbroken sadness, for after the death of Julia, Drusus' daughter, she lived forty years in the dress of mourning with only sorrow in her heart. This escaped punishment in Claudius' reign and thereafter was turned to her glory. And they also speculate that this sense that she lived in mourning was really just her living in Christian simplicity as opposed to the trappings of a person of wealth and influence in the empire. So that's kind of interesting. But at any rate, there were a number of reasons that Christians in the Roman Empire uh, suffered persecution. <clears throat> One was they called themselves hagios, saints. They called themselves saints. And that didn't mean perfect, but that did mean, in a strong sense, different separated ones. That's what holy means, set apart. And so they called themselves that, and they lived that way, and people are always suspicious of somebody who's different, and they were intentionally different. They lived simply, they lived by Jesus' teachings, and uh, we know that whenever and however we are able to do that, the same thing happens. If you live simply and by Jesus' teachings, it becomes almost a condemnation of the culture at large if you live differently. And so it made people uh, kind of resent them. Tertullian said <coughs> of the Christians, we have the reputation of living aloof from the crowds. And because of their way of life, the Christians were seen as treacherous citizens treacherous why well for one thing 
Rejecting <clears throat> the Roman gods made them social misfits and made them ineligible for certain occupations. Uh, they couldn't uh, do any kind of craft that was associated with pagan worship or pagan temples. Uh, they couldn't read or participate in pagan literature. They couldn't work in pagan hospitals. <laughs> I read something from Hippolytus that uh, there were other occupations they couldn't do either. Uh, Hippolytus said if they're an actor, they must quit, or they can't become members. Uh, why? Well, actors <clears throat> were looked upon with some disdain in that culture. Hippolytus did go on to say, but if they want to be members, you as a community support them until they learn a different way to make a living. Not support them forever, but support them until they can find a different way to make a living. Uh, Hippolytus said, you can be a soldier, but you can't kill anybody. Okay. Uh, you can be a soldier, but you must prefer to die than to kill somebody. That would make that a real hazardous occupation, don't you think? <laughs> and if you were a member of a platoon and you had some Christians in there and you knew these guys were going to die rather than kill, you might be a little suspicious of them too. So it probably made soldiering kind of a you know, a treacherous <laughs> occupation on both sides of that. Christians were atheists, right? They rejected the gods. And uh, that made them seem to the culture to be people without faith. Um, the, uh, the other thing is the Christians had different ideas about the way you should live. They had different ideas about sexuality and marriage. Would that sound familiar in our culture? They had different ideas about slaves and how you should treat them different kinds of economic ideas, and all of these things made uh, the Christians a little suspicious. The other thing that we don't realize today is, in the early times, the Christians often worshipped in secret. Why? Well, if they're going to round you up and feed you to the lions or something, you, you might want to you know, not publicize where you were meeting. In fact, I read something earlier this year that was actually being critical of seeker worship. What do I mean by seeker worship? We dumb everything down to make it inviting for people. Okay? And what this author was saying was the church consistently grew at least 10% per year in its early years when it worshipped in secret and had deacons guard the doors. Uh, had deacons guard the doors and they wouldn't let people come in unless they had been invited by somebody or could assure them that they weren't like Paul, you know, just going to arrest them and drag them off or something. So that, that would be sort of the opposite of seeker worship. It was secret worship. <clears throat> well, we might have to. That's right. That's right. Now, because the worship was secret, certain rumors spread about the Christians. One, they have orgies, right? Why? Because of the tradition of the kiss of peace. Do we do the kiss of peace? No, we shake hands. But they used to, it's the same thing. They used to, they would pass the peace with the kiss of peace. And they were also cannibals, right? Because they drank blood and they ate flesh. And so, oh my gosh, they're very immoral people. And so they were slandered. Um, because they worshipped without any images of the deity that they worshipped, and because <coughs> they did not worship the Roman gods, um, they were considered atheists, and there was a lot of popular superstition. And so if something went wrong, the Christians got blamed on it. Ken told us last week when Rome burned, even if Nero himself was culpable, he blamed it on who? The Christians. By the way, I found uh, a couple accounts of the uh, persecution under Nero and it's pretty ugly. I'm not going to read it with you, but read you the whole thing. But, uh, you know, he would have them uh, burned like torches and drive, torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when daylight failed. Nero threw open his grounds for the display and was putting on a show in the circus where he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer and drove about in his chariot. So... So they blamed stuff on the Christians. And in fact, Tertullian said, this is a quote, if the Tiber floods, up goes the cry, Christiano ad leonem, 
which means Christians to the lions. So they blame Stefan. If there, if there was, like if we had a hurricane that wiped out the Gulf Coast, we'd say, it's those non-Christians. They got blamed for that sort of stuff. Now we just blame it on the president. It's that non president. The, uh, the other thing that led to Christian persecution was, at the same time, the growth of emperor worship. And uh, even before Julius Caesar, uh, they, the goddess Roma, who was the sort of patron goddess of Rome, was added to the pantheon of gods. Emperors began seeing themselves, or at least to be seen, as the embodiment of Rome and deified in the beginning after death, but with Nero, uh, even when they're alive, and, and that sort of caught on. And emperor worship became a policy within the, in, within the empire to, to try to unify the empire. So by the end of the first century, it was pretty common to demand emperor worship and to see the uh, emperor as kind of a god king. By the mid-third century, uh, Emperor of worship was made universal and compulsory. There was a persecution under Decius. Fortunately, Decius only reigned from like 249 to 251, uh, and then he got killed, fortunately, for the Christians. But he had a mandatory, uh, uh, almost like a registration. One of the documents in here comes from the persecution under Decius, and it's uh, in response to an edict he sent out that every citizen had to sacrifice to the emperor and have it witnessed and, and notarized, as it were. And so this is uh, <clears throat> the uh, certificate of sacrifice from a, from a person at that time. It reads, To the commissioners for sacrifices in the village of Alexander's Island, from Aurelius Diogenes, son of Satibus, of the village of Alexander's Island, aged 72, scar on right eyebrow. I have always sacrificed to the gods, and now in your presence, in accordance with the terms of the edict, I have done sacrifice and poured libations and tasted the sacrifice, and I request you to certify to this effect. Farewell. Presented by me, Aurelius Diogenes, and then I certify that I witnessed his sacrifice, Aurelius Cyrus dated this first year of the emperor Caesar Gaius Messius Quintus Trajanus Decius Pius Felix Augustus II. Okay. So it was very formal, and it was very required. And if you didn't have this certificate, you could be uh, fed to the lions or whatever. It was the uncompromising faith of the early Christians that really got them in trouble. And... Uh, led to the increase in persecution and martyrdom that occurred during this time. I think there were something like 10 Roman Caesars during the period of the early church up until uh, the time of Constantine. And there was some kind of persecution under each of them. Nero, as we said, probably had Peter and Paul killed, burned Rome, blinded on the Christians, destroyed Jerusalem, burned Christians, fed them to the dogs. Domitian thought Christianity was atheism. He had thousands killed. He was probably the one that banished John to the island of Patmos. And he was the first to deify himself with the title Lord and God. Trajan was the first to pass, actually pass laws against Christianity. And by the way, that, that led to some confusion. There's some documentation of people writing back and forth and saying, okay, if, how do we tell if they're Christians? And you know, what are they really guilty of if they're Christians, and should we just kill them, or should, you know, what are we supposed to do with them? So it led to some confusion when it became illegal to be a Christian. He was the one who had Ignatius burned at the stake. He didn't have them sought out for torture, but did say, anyone who, deny, who will deny being a Christian and actively proves it by adorning our gods must be forgiven on the basis of his repentance no matter how suspect his past. So you could be forgiven for being a Christian under his, in his reign. Pius was the one who had Polycarp uh, burned. Marcus Aurelius thought Christianity was an absurd superstition, sought out Christians for torture and death. Severus uh, tortured Origen on a daily basis for three years and had Origen's father killed. 
Decius was the one we talked about who required the sacrifice. Diocletian was the most severe. He really went on a rampage against the church, had churches torn down, demanded that they surrender the holy books, and, and on and on. Now, what was the result of this persecution? Did the church go away? No. The church always thrives in an area of persecution. You know, we, we see that. Um, remember when the Berlin Wall came down? Do you remember all the excitement? We're going to go evangelize Eastern Europe. And everybody ran over there. And what did they find? Things were in pretty good shape. In fact, they might have been in better shape than where the missionaries had come from. Um, when China opened up a little bit, what they find? Millions of Christians. Um, it's always been the case that persecution strengthens the faith. And in times of toleration and plenty, what happens? We get weak. So, so that was probably the, one of the things that led to the rise uh, and the, the strength in the early church was the persecution. Another thing that happened was that as the church spread, grew, and developed, of course, people are going to have different ideas about things. What is heresy? Anybody know? What's heresy? Not orthodox. Not orthodox. Well, what's orthodox? What the Roman Catholic Church says orthodox is. Well, there wasn't really a Roman Catholic Church at the time. There was a Catholic okay, Church. Okay, so what is the Catholic Church? what the universal church says it is? Well, how do they say what it is? Phoenix. Well, you know, I think heresy, it's a little hard to define, but I just call it out of bounds. I mean, it just goes too far in one area. And orthodoxy, I would say, is more like inbounds or uh, accepted thinking. Well, how do you, how do you decide that? That's what led to the rise of theology. What's theology? What does that mean? Study of God. Study of God, yeah. Theos, God, Logos, Word. I call it God talk. It's words about God. It can be the study of God. Um, and one of the things we have to remember is theology is always a secondary enterprise. What would primary be in terms of faith? What would some of the primary things be? Well, God's revelation. Okay, how does God reveal Himself to us? Well, we didn't have the Bible. Though. Well, they had a Bible right. at, this, at this time. Okay. Maybe. Okay, through Scripture. Okay, that'll be one way. Actions of others. Actions of others. Okay. Sometimes it just reveals Himself through word to you. Through word to you. The primary. Uh, ways that the early church felt that God had revealed himself was through the people of Israel and the recording of that in scripture and ultimately and fully in Jesus Christ. Okay, so they have these witnesses. Those would be primary. But the traditions about Jesus and the writings that are occurring, which are maybe not yet scripture, but people are writing about it, talking about it, and the the scriptures and their and, and their meaning are all subject to interpretation. Okay, and so the the theology is the interpretation of these things, and you can see why it's secondary. If the revelation itself is primary, in terms of our response, what should our primary response to God's revelation be? I'm asking a bunch of Presbyterians. Think hard. What? Worship. Yeah. I mean. That should be our primary response to God's revelation, is praise and worship. And then our secondary response is to seek to understand these things. So theology develops, but remember, it's subject to human understanding, and it is kind of a second-order thing. Now, in your note here, it says erroneous thinking about God is heresy. Clear thinking about God is orthodoxy. But again, it depends on how you define erroneous and how you define clear. Uh, in a community of belief, like the church, or like the people of Israel before them, it is the community that eventually defines what's clear thinking and what's out-of-bounds thinking. Now, there were several things in the early church that led 
to the need for some thinking, uh, for some theological thinking that challenged uh, the thinking of the early community. One was this movement of Christianity from a primarily Jewish tradition into a Gentile tradition and the different ways people think and approach things. If you're a Jew and you become a Christian, what what your paradigm for, what your way of interpreting that is, is, you know, I know how God has worked in the history of his people of Israel, and now Jesus is our long-promised Messiah, and, you know, we see fulfillment of prophecies and promises, and, you know, it just fits right into your worldview, your way of thinking. But if you're a Greek, you're more likely, even if you were religious, it was going to be the Greek and Roman gods, and if not, uh, you'd be more attuned to philosophy and that sort of thing. Now you have these people in the middle of the road, which were the Gentile God-fearers, who knew about the traditions of Israel, um, had not become Jews yet. So you have this whole mishmash of people, and because of different ways of understanding things, you're going to have to develop ways to talk about it. So kind of simplistically, Jewish believers just kind of accepted Jesus as part of what God has been up to, but the Gentile or Greek believers wanted to really have some way to think about this in a philosophical or an abstract manner. And one of the first things that happened was creeds developed. What, what does a creed mean? Yeah, it's from the Latin credo, I believe. And so, what would one of the earliest creeds in the church be? Jesus is Lord. That would probably be one. I think probably in Romans 10, Paul snuck one in on us when he said, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, that just to me kind of sounds like a creed. And there's other things, like in the Galatians letter, that you think, oh, that's pithy, that's a nice little thing. That was probably... A creed. So they developed creeds, and these creeds affirmed certain things. That Jesus came in the flesh. That Jesus was bodily resurrected. And by early in the tradition of the church, there was developing a Trinitarian description of God, even if they hadn't hammered out the theology. Um, by the time the Gospel of Matthew was written, what is in the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? Go therefore into all the world and baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So even if they had not developed and written down and articulated a Trinitarian doctrine, they were thinking in a Trinitarian way. Now one of my theology professors said, you know, the heresies have been the same since the beginning. There's really two main flavors of heresy when you're talking about Jesus. One is... <clears throat> Jesus was a really great guy, but he was a guy. He wasn't a god. Okay? And you emphasize the humanity of Jesus. And you de-emphasize the divinity. And then on the other side is, Jesus was only pretending to be a human. He was actually God. He, uh, he kind of sneaked in, led you to believe he was a human, but, I mean, he's really more God. Now, Orthodox Christian thought has tried to hold these two things together, fully human, fully divine. We'll probably get to the Chalcedonian Declaration. I kind of like it. It's undivided, unmixed, 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 100% human, 100% divine. If you're a mathematician, just deal with it. Okay? <laughs> um, but that was, that was played out in the early church through a couple of traditions. One was Ebionism, Ebionites took the tack that Jesus was an exemplary man, that he was justified by his complete observance of the law, that that qualified him to be the Messiah, but a man he was. Okay? If we fast forward to the 20th century, who do we have saying this today? The PCUSA, or parts of it. No. <laughs> uh, anybody read any of the Jesus seminar stuff? Yeah, a couple of you. Um, Marcus Borg, John Nacrossen, those guys, they'll take the tack that uh, Jesus was a wandering sage and a cynic and an exemplary man and a wise philosopher, but 
just a man. And so, you know, the same heresies kind of keep coming around. The uh, docetists, by the way, some of these words are, are hard, but it's like practicing medicine. I used to tell people, if I just translated everything into English, you wouldn't think I was very smart. If I tell somebody, you have spondylolisthesis, I sound pretty smart. Right? <laughs> but if I tell them spondylo means spine and listhesis means slip, if I told you, you have a slipped spine, you wouldn't pay me nearly as much <laughs> as if I say it to you in Greek. Well, the same thing happens here. Docetus comes from a Greek word of the verb, which means to seem. And so what it means is, Jesus only seemed like a man. And he didn't really come into the foot. Yeah, Elmer? Uh-huh. Well, like I just said, they were they were talking about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all through the development of the New Testament. There had been traditions of God as Spirit in the Old Testament, and so the the talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is already present in the New Testament. They don't really hammer out the doctrines, well-formulated doctrines, until the councils start meeting, and I think we'll get to that in an upcoming week. Uh, but they're already developing some of these thoughts. Well, the Docetists said Jesus was all spirit and only seemed to be human. And so these were some of the challenges to the more orthodox Christian thought that required thinking about what do we really believe? Then came on the scene probably the biggest challenge to the faith, which is called Gnosticism. I uh, started probably around the end of the first century, or at least took hold about that time. It comes from a Greek word, gnosis, which means knowledge or to know. And uh, it's really hard to describe. I mean, there, you can't just say, here's a definition of Gnosticism, any more than you could say, here's a definition of republicanism. I mean, can anybody do that for me? Okay. You know one when you see one, right? <laughs> I'm not even sure. I was a Democrat at one point, and then Fitz told me to become a Republican, so I did, and I don't feel any different. <laughs> so, we all noticed, though. I don't want to, don't want to get into that, Beth. <laughs> well, yeah. this is where okay. uh, uh, In Galatians, Paul talks about being followed by Nazarene or all the people that were questioning, is Jesus God at, the, at some point? If I remember looking, when Laurel did that study back on Galatians, looking at them, there was a footnote saying that that included the Ebionites. Yeah, the Ebionites would be in line with the Arians, would be in line. I mean, it's like okay. you say, these, these heresies tend to perpetuate okay, themselves. Okay, so, but these yeah. have been around Right. What my theology teacher said is also, you will have a tendency personally to lean one way or the other. Examine yourself, identify your tendency, and then guard against it. So I think that's important, too. Gnosticism really is just a broad movement that has several things in common. One is it has this sense of secret knowledge. Okay? We talk about heresies perpetuating themselves. Do we have any evidence in the 20th century of things that would, you know, secret knowledge? I know something about Jesus you don't know. The Da Vinci Code. Anybody read that? Watch it? I mean, what a waste of time. I paid $2 for it, so I owed it to myself to finish it. Well, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not promoting it, but think about some of the premises of the Da Vinci Code. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. You didn't know that, but I did. Jesus had kids. You didn't know that, but I did. Jesus passed on some secret knowledge, and other people gathered it up, and they kept it hidden for centuries. But if you could just find it, then you would be enlightened, and you would know the truth. I think that's kind of a pretty good example of Gnosticism. Some sort of secret knowledge was imparted by Jesus, or maybe by one of, usually by Jesus, to somebody, and they have passed it along, but it's secret. 
and you need to find it out. Um, That's right. They describe a different kind of Jesus. And if you've ever read, read them, you think, well, this is a little different than what I'm used to. Now, in similar, uh, like Orthodox Christianity, the Gnostics did accept the idea of a supreme God or deity and heavenly beings in the universe and the need for salvation, but they had a different spin on it. Uh, one of the things that characterized them was a sense of dualism, that the universe is set up with a good and evil in balance. Okay? Do we believe that, by the way? Are we dualists? No. No, we're not. That's the right answer. We do believe that there is sin and evil in the world, but do we think God's in any danger of being overthrown? No. Do we think that evil is balanced against God? No. We even know that Jesus has already kicked butt, right? War's over. We're in the mopping up operations. It's kind of an extended time and uh, things keep going on. But we know that Jesus has defeated sin. And so we're not dualists. We recognize that there is sin and evil in the world, but we're not dualists. Well, now, that one of the things about their dualism is they saw spirit as good and matter as bad. Okay? Now, do we carry some of that over into our beliefs? Yeah. Give me some examples. Yeah. Yeah. That would be matter. That's bad. Okay, let me ask you this. What happens when you die? Oh, yeah, my body just, you know, I'm rid of it, and I, my soul gets to go into heaven. Folks, that's not really Christian. I mean, what's Christian is, I will be resurrected someday, okay? Just like Jesus was resurrected, I will be resurrected, okay? So, but we do carry some of this matter, spirit, dualism, even in our own thinking. Well, they carried it to extremes, and they got... Uh, they got off on the, you know, if matter's bad, then God couldn't be associated with matter. So God's really not, he's way off from this universe. He gave some uh, demi-urges, or uh, his demi-urge was what created the world. And, uh, you know, all of the material and everything is bad. He had to send a representative, Jesus, to redeem it. And, uh, and so there's this, there's this weird sense of uh, material, spiritual, and, uh, and the dualism that permeates Gnostic teachings. Um, humanity does need to be redeemed from this evil material existence, and so that's what Jesus came for. Now, unfortunately, he didn't make it clear what the project was, so you have to get in on the secrets in order to understand how to achieve that. Now, one of the first responses of the church to these heresies, whether it was Ebionism or Docetism or Gnosticism, is to start saying what they believe. What do they believe? Um, earliest, some of the earliest Christian creeds we've talked about, the earliest written one that we have is probably the Apostles' Creed. And in it, uh, you will find statements that battle these three main areas of heresy. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. He did come. He was what? I believe in uh, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Oh, that's not very Gnostic. He made heaven and earth. You know, matter's not bad. He made it. And in his only begotten Son, uh, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary. What do you think bothered the Gnostics more in that cause, born of the Virgin Mary? What would be the hang-up point for most of us moderns? Virgin? Explain that to me. That wasn't what got the Gnostics. It was born. Born. Yeah. So they were more docetists. He wasn't born. He just showed up. Um... <laughs> Born. That's nasty. Okay. <laughs> Humanity 
is whole. It's not a good, bad, body, spirit division. How do we end up the Apostles' Creed? And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the... Oh my God, I don't get to leave it behind. I've got to drag the thing along with me. I thought it was nasty. No? So we refute that body-mind division. And humanity needs salvation not by secret wisdom, but by a Savior. That Jesus is our Redeemer by what he did not by imparting secret wisdom. So part of the impetus of the early theology and the early creeds were on the basis of refuting these heresies that were cropping up. Now another thing that happened along with that <coughs> was as the church leaders were debating on what, what the orthodox beliefs were, they also had to determine which of the writings that were developing were authoritative. Okay. Back to the Da Vinci Code. How was the canon of the Bible determined? Council of Nicaea. Yes, the Council of Nicaea, but who determined it? Constantine. Yeah, Constantine told the Council of Nicaea, this is according... Now remember, don't take this home with you. This is according to the Da Vinci Code. But I was sitting at Chileno's eating dinner with my son, and this lady in back of me, her daughter was talking in a very urgent and convincing voice that this was how the Bible was put together. That the Emperor Constantine told the Council of Nicaea that these were the books that would be included in order to promote his own agenda. And this, and I'm thinking she really believe? And then she's, her mother said, where did you learn that? She said, from the Da Vinci Code. And I thought, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> All right, how many of you know where the Bible came from? Did it just drop out of the sky like this, nicely bound? No. Okay, where did it come from? And was that really the formative event? No. How did it come to be? How did the Old Testament come to be? The Torah? The Jews. Okay, if you were a first century Jew, what would be scripture to you? If you're a Sadducee, it would be the first five books. That's it. Sadducees were the conservatives back then. Nope, just first five. Not the rest. Okay. But if you were a Pharisee, what would the scripture be? Well, you'd have the Torah, right? The first five books. What about the prophets? Yeah, you have that. What about the writings? Things like Psalms, Job, uh, Proverbs, stuff like that. Yeah, you'd have that. Okay. Now, here's a question. Was it all equally authoritative? No, no. No. When did plenary inspiration of Scripture come in? Probably mid-19th century with dispensationalism. Okay? But if you were a good rabbi, you could argue your point. And if you had a Torah text, that would trump a prophetic text, which would trump a writing text. So... You know, if you could pull one out of the Torah. And notice how Jesus, as you read through some of his encounters with people, he's a good rabbi. He can always give him a Torah text. So, <laughs> so if you're a good Jew, uh, maybe a scribe, a Pharisee, something like that, you would have an Old Testament. Uh, no, it would be your scriptures would include, didn't become old until we claimed it. Your scripture would include the Torah, the first five books, the prophets, major and minor. Uh, the writings, including Psalms, uh, Proverbs, uh, Job, stuff like that. What about these other things that were written kind of closer to the time of Jesus? You know what I'm talking about? Wisdom of Solomon, other parts of Daniel, uh, Bell and the Dragon, Judith, Tobit, uh, Esdras. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Ever heard of those things? Yeah, the Apocrypha. Would those be scripture? 
Paul did. At least if you believe Richard Hayes, who wrote this nice book called Echoes of Scripture in the Writings of Paul, he will show that Paul, you know, Paul didn't always say, it is written, and then give you a quote. But he would do like we do a lot when we talk. If I, you know, I was asking a question earlier, and I think Susan said jot and tittle. Well, I know what she was talking about, didn't you? Jot and tittle. She didn't say, as it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse such and such, and quote the whole verse. She just said jot and tittle, assuming that I would know what she was talking about. That's an echo of scripture in, in our language. And Paul uses a lot of that in his writings. I mean, if you read this book by Hayes, uh, Paul's writings are just filled with little, little zingers from scripture. And a lot of that is from the apocryphal works. So, you know, I didn't say, did Paul consider canon? I said, did he consider it scripture? What is scripture anyway? What does scripture mean? Something that's authoritative to you and that guides your faith and practice. Okay. Now, for us, it has become a canon and a closed canon, but for them at the time, it wasn't. Well, that might not be the whole story of Paul because he also quoted the Stoics. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The Greek Right. He did do that too. Um, so, the way the Bible is formed in in terms of both the Old and the New Testaments is by the witness of the worshiping community. Okay, that's how it's formed. Um, if you read down to the bottom of that page, this thing called self-evidencing power to transform people's lives and produce conversion. How does something become part of Scripture? What does Paul say in 2 Timothy? It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking. It's, it's a guiding thing. It, it, uh, it has a self-evidencing quality. One of the things I do sometimes when I'm talking about Scripture and the authority of Scripture, I have this old 1945 textbook of orthopedic surgery, Key and Conwell. By golly, it was the gold standard in 1945. It was the Bible of orthopedic surgery. And I hold it up and I say, yeah, it's 60 years later. If you did anything it said to do in this book, you'd probably get sued for malpractice if you treated people this way. Because it's the wisdom of man. It's the best thing they could do at the time, but it's of historical interest only. 50, 60, even 40 years later. On the other hand, Scripture has this ability. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews said... The word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, divides bone from marrow, ligament, joint from ligament, blah, blah, blah. Um, scripture has this ability to be alive, okay? And you can sense that when you read it. That would be one of the tests I would apply to Scripture versus some of the stuff that got left out. Go read it. I did. It's, there's a difference. Uh, and it was that community that gathered around Christ, gathered around their traditions, worshipped together, and they determined what was, had this self-evidencing quality by what they used to worship with, what they read and worshipped, what they taught from, and that's how things became canon. Okay? Uh, one of the things that you can do is you can look at uh, lists of books from the early church fathers. Okay, go back to Irenaeus, Origen, any of these people, and you can get some idea with a lot of them what books they refer to or what they thought was scripture. And what you'll find is, just like with the Jews, everybody always included the first five and the major prophets and most of the minor prophets. And you know, you'll find the same thing with the New Testament. Every early church father chose the four gospels. Okay, now occasionally someone would refer to the Gospel of the Hebrews. I've never seen any citation from a church father to the Gospel of Thomas. Okay. Now, Paul's letters, at least the most prominent ten, are in everybody's list. And uh, some of the other some of the other works are on everybody's list. Uh, the first letter of Peter, the first letter of John. Now, there are some that are not on everybody's list. Hebrews, 
Sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. June, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not. The last two letters of John, sometimes there, sometimes not. The book we love the most, Revelation, <laughs> sometimes there, sometimes not. Um, and then there are some books that we don't have as our canon of scripture. I have them upstairs if you want to read them. Uh, Clement's letter to Corinth. Uh, the Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, the Didache, teaching of the Twelve Apostles. These were, at one point, almost as highly regarded as scripture. They weren't canonized, but they were useful. And so what you see is that even from the very beginning, with the exception of a couple of heresies, which I think we've already covered, uh, Marcionism and Montanism, have we talked about those yet? No, we will. Um, the Old Testament was accepted. Um, the Apocrypha, which are those other books we were talking about, were, depending on where you were in the church, they might be accepted or not. The uh, the people who were more influenced by the Greek translation of the Old Testament would be more likely to include them because they were included in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The way it sort of fell out was that Christians in the West, under the influence of Augustine, continued to claim the Apocrypha, but churches in the East, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, did not. Okay, And the Western Church accepted them up until the time of the Reformation, when, as I understand it, Martin Luther and Eck were having a debate, and Eck was making a point out of one of the apocryphal books that Martin Luther pronounced at that point, we do not accept the Apocrypha, and so we Protestants have not had it in our Bibles since then. So, um, The uh, other factors that caused books to be more likely to include it in the canon was, like I said, that tradition of use and worship and authorship that can be attributed either to an apostle or to someone closely associated. For instance, Luke. Was Luke an apostle? No. But who was he closely associated with? Paul. He was Paul's buddy. Okay. How about Mark? Was Mark an apostle? No. But who was he closely associated with? Well, if it was John Mark, he was also a buddy of Paul's, on and off. But the tradition of the church is that Mark was a disciple or closely associated with Peter, and that his gospel is his recordings of Peter's uh, testimony. So a book that could either be attributed to one of the apostles or closely associated was more likely to become canon. On That's a good question. One of the earliest lists that we have uh, of New Testament books is called the Miratorian Canon. And it's dated to about the year 190. Okay, When were most of the books in the New Testament written? Do you know? Well, Paul's letters had to be written before they killed him, which would have been late 60s, right? Um, what about the Gospels? Yeah, probably Mark was 50 to 60, Matthew and Luke. It depends on who you talk to. Could be 70 or even 80. Gospel of John, probably a little later, but certainly still in the first century. I think there wasn't a cutoff date, but because a book to be included had to be either apostolic itself or closely associated, not much after the end of the first century is going to be included because the apostles and their close associates are, are gone. Um, the Didache, which is a very important document, was probably written early 2nd century. Clement was the bishop of Rome in the 2nd uh, century. And so these are uh, early 2nd century books that did not get included. So probably uh, in terms of the authorship and writing of the books, we're talking about from mid to late first century. And then in terms of acceptance, it would be within the next century, okay? Because the things that caused them to be accepted was they'd pass them around, they'd keep them, they'd make copies of them, okay? 
you don't realize uh, you can't just go to a copy your Xerox machine back in these days and say, rip me off a couple of copies of Paul's letter that he just sent. It's a tedious thing for a scribe to, to make copies of these letters. So you're only going to make copies of the best stuff. And you're only going to keep and distribute copies of the best stuff. In the Middle Ages, the monks and the monasteries performed that. Who was copying then? Scribes. The scribes were You know, I suspect some of the scribes who were scribes before may have become Christians. Probably not like there was a huge number of them. And then, you know, Paul had an amanuensis, which is like a secretary to take dictation. And so it would just be somebody who could write Greek, who was a thing. Um, Just for reference, say, when was the Gospel of Tongues supposedly written? Depends on who you talk to. Elaine Pagels of Princeton would like you to think that it might be as early as late first century, but most people think it's much later than that. So I'm not sure it's authoritatively dated, but since it's in that collection of literature that seems Gnostic, it's probably later. Most Gnostic literature is later. Uh, the other thing you don't realize is how were these letters and books distributed? Were they bound together like mine? No. The first attempt at that was because it's hard to bind that kind of material. Uh, it's thick. Uh, there were a lot of scrolls. But uh, they did start doing codices. And so they'd take three or four of their favorite books and bind them together. Or they might bind the full go four Gospels together or something. But you didn't have a you know, stuck-together Bible very early. I think that's pretty fanciful. But I think so. Yeah. Um, the uh, there were some other events that led to the need to agree on a canon because they were challenges to the canon. The first one was Marcion. Marcion, about mid-2nd century, um, who was influenced by the Gnostics, developed the belief that the Old Testament God was bad, that Jesus was a new deal, and so he wanted to throw out the Old Testament and only retain those portions of the New Testament that didn't tie Jesus back into Judaism. And so he threw out Matthew, right? Because Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. He said, well, we'll keep Luke, but we'll, ch we'll just start at chapter 3 because we want to get rid of all that birth narrative stuff. And we'll exclude the genealogy. So he started at chapter 3, but he threw out verses 23 through 38, which are the genealogy. And he kept some of Paul's letters, but not all of Paul's letters. And that was pretty much his canon. Um, Tertullian countered him with the claim that the New Covenant did not fully, cannot be fully understood without the Old Covenant and that Christianity was rooted in Judaism. And so Marcion was excommunicated. Okay? Montanus was the next challenge to uh, Scripture. And this challenge was different. It wasn't about throwing stuff out. It was about how much are you going to keep adding in? Because Montanus around 160, says he's a new prophet. He's got a new message from the Holy Spirit about an imminent second coming of Christ. He's got a couple prophetesses, and he claims that his apocalyptic or revelation-type prophecies are new, and they're from the Holy Spirit. And does this sound at all familiar? Yeah, like Mormonism, a new prophecy. Or, and so... The response to that was, eh, we don't think so, Montanus. Although his movement held on, had some influence for quite a while. But these two challenges, what can we add in? What can legitimately be added in? And what can we legitimately get rid of become challenges for the church? So, by, like I said, by about 190, we have this document called the Meritorian Canon, which I won't read to you, but it does describe, it's an early document that describes the books that are felt to be um, authoritative. And in that document, it would be similar to our New Testament. It would have two things. Ours doesn't. One is the Wisdom of Solomon, which, by the way, is in an apocrypha if you want to read it. 
um, and the Apocalypse of Peter. Those would be two that were in the Miratorian canon that aren't in our Bible. And things present in our Bible that were not in the Miratorian canon would be John's third letter, Hebrews, and first and second Peter. The, the point is that the, the development of the New Testament was a gradual process. Different leaders had different lists. One of the tests of Scripture is, is it worth dying for? Under the Diocletian persecution, they'd come to your door like if you were Joe or me, and they'd say, we're going to burn your church, and you have to turn over the holy books, or we're going to kill you. Okay, so you go to your library, and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to give a Marcus Board and John Donovan Cross and, and Elaine Gals and uh, Elizabeth Johnson, but I'm not going to give them my Bible or my Calvin or my... I mean, because you know in your heart what you're going to keep, what is worth having and what isn't. And so books that are worth dying for become canon. And throughout this process, there were always some books that were kind of in and out. The Letter of the Hebrews was kind of in and out. James was in and out. Second Peter in and out. Second and Third John, Jude and Revelation. And then there were some that didn't make it that I've referred to. The Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, Revelation of Peter, Acts of Peter. Uh, they're interesting reading. That's how you find out that Peter was what? How'd Peter die? How do you know that? It's not in your Bibles. It's in the, it's in the Acts of Peter. Uh, and you can find that in some of these other books. Um, so that's how the canon came together. So what you see in this early formative area, uh, time of the church, is you see the church being strengthened through persecution and the reasons for the persecution. You see it having to hammer out what it thinks it believes because of heresies, which are just getting too far this way or too far this way. And you have, you see the church uh, deciding what do we believe is scripture, you know, how, what documents are we going to use to define our faith. So you can see the development of what we would again call a Catholic Christianity, you know, things that we all agree on. And that's where we're going to stop tonight. We're going to talk uh, next time about the development of some leadership in the church and more of the theological thinking. Uh, I do have some of these books if anybody's interested in looking at it. You know, one of the common themes in movies today is the Roman Catholic Church has had this document and they've kept it secret from the public and oh my god you know it turns out to be the Gospel of Thomas and hey it's been in print for 40 years you know if you want to read it I've got it come read it but why do you think that there are I mean the, the Vatican does have stuff locked up right I mean when do you uh, they're locking that stuff up well um, like when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered they wanted to do some initial research, and I don't think it was the Catholics that had those. I forget who had them. But, you know, this Isaiah scroll, they found an intact Isaiah scroll. And what does the media have tendencies to do? They want to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing about the truth? Yeah, they want to sensationalize it. And so they wanted to have an opportunity to have scholars study it and, you know, see how well it conformed to the thing we have in the OC. And then they eventually turned it loose to the public. I think it's more of a, uh, what would you say, a management of the information than a secrecy. Now, I can't speak for the Catholic Church. I don't know what they have. But I know that from what I know of the discovery of ancient texts and scrolls, like the Dead Sea and the Nag Hammadi texts and stuff like that, they go through a period of initial evaluation, which I think is reasonable, and then once they know what they have, they're released. And then they sequester all the really good stuff in a secret cave somewhere, and, you know, it'll make a good movie someday. Okay, any other questions? Time to quit, a little over time to quit. Um, remember, we're going to try and go 6.15 to 7.15. By the way, if anybody in here is choir, they're free to leave, even if we're running over a little bit at 7.15. And if you have to pick up a kid, feel free to leave. That's all for tonight. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time together. And, uh, and it is intriguing to, uh, to think about and to learn about uh, your church. And we 
ask that you would use this information to guide us even in our life together today because as we discover like the writer of Ecclesiastes says there's there's nothing new under the sun this has all been done before so we ask that you would use it to guide us in our life and that we might be faithful to you we offer you these prayers in Jesus name Amen Podcasts are independently produced and syndicated for a global audience under a Creative Commons attribution-only license. It is our hope that you will continue to pursue after God and to seek to know His Son, Jesus Christ. Learn more on our website at eyesright.speedofcreativity.org.